Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today, Raphael is joined by Dr. Sarma Velamuri, founder and CEO of Luminaire. Luminaire is a Houston-based digital health company dedicated to ending sepsis, the number one cause of death in U.S. hospitals. In the conversation that follows, Dr. Velamuri explains how Luminaire saves lives by streamlining hospital workflows and by changing the behavior of nurses and doctors. They've also made a giant leap into COVID tracking, emerging as national leaders on this front. Let's get right to it. Welcome everyone to Talking Precision Medicine. Today, our guest is Dr. Sarma Velamuri. Sarma and I have sort of known each other for over five years now, both growing our companies in the Houston startup ecosystem. Uh, and passing in the hallways around various incubators in the Texas Medical Center and so forth. Uh, Sarma is co-founder and CEO of Luminaire, which is a truly visionary, in my opinion, uh, health tech company. But I'm going to let Sarma tell us about it. So Sarma, welcome. First of all, thanks for joining us. And uh, tell us, what is Luminaire? What are you trying to do? Thank you, Rafael. Um, a good question. In order to tell you uh, about Luminaire, I have to give you a little bit of background uh, about myself. I'm not a typical company founder. Um, I like to say I'm a recovering physician. Uh, my day job was working in a hospital, taking care of patients. Um, by qualification, I'm plain old internal medicine, but uh, I work only seeing patients in hospitals. So that's called a hospitalist. And uh, just so happened that 80% of our of my patients were transplant. So they were either heart, lung, liver, I've had a few intestine transplant patients and prosthetic hearts and things like that. Uh, these patients end up uh, dying of sepsis, which is the body's response to an infection. And um, Luminaire, which is Latin for to shed light upon, uh, is a company that does software-based robotic process automation for hospitals to detect sepsis faster and stop people from dying of sepsis. So. I think most of our listeners will have heard of sepsis and there's kind of this lore that, you know, especially if you're an older person, you know, staying in a hospital is more dangerous maybe than going home, but how big a problem is sepsis? You know, is, is this a real issue that we have to contend with? Good question. Um, if you asked me that question five years ago, I would have had a different answer. Uh, even as a doctor, when I started the company to quote unquote fix sepsis, I wasn't quite aware of how big a problem it was. Uh, sepsis is the number one cause of death in U.S. hospitals. It's the number one cause of maternal fetal death globally. Uh, it's the number one cause of chronic organ failure that is preventable. Uh, number one expense in the in inpatient stays in the hospital. Number one cause of readmissions to the hospital. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, we're spending about 15 billion a year on sepsis annually, uh, and apart from the financial cost. You know, conservative estimate, there's about 800 people a day who die in U.S. hospitals today, 
every day and that's that's like two Boeing 747s falling out of the sky every day in the US uh, and it's been that way for years and that's how big the problem is it's a quarter million people a year in the US that die of sepsis that sounds absolutely tragic and why is sepsis such a killer why why do people fall prey to it why is it hard to I don't know, treat or diagnose? Is it detection that's the issue? Good question. So sepsis is very heterogeneous. So, you know, when people think of diseases like heart attacks or they think of strokes, uh, they have some subtle variations within them, but largely there is the same problem. Either the person is bleeding out into their brain or there's a blockage going to their brain. Either the person you know, heart is not pumping like it should because of some electrical problems or there's a blockage of blood going to the heart, right? So that might manifest as different things. The problem with sepsis is it, you know, people say sepsis and they think infection. It's a very heterogeneous, uh, we call it like a shape-shifting disease. It's not just an infection, it's more of the body's response to an infection. And the response is abnormal. And so what I mean by that is, Think about uh, a bull in, in the arena, right? So you have a guy who's standing there in a fancy dress, you know, like with a big hat, and he has a sharp stick, right? So he pokes the bull with a sharp stick, and the response, I mean, the bull is huge. This guy is tiny, and the stick is really, really small. I mean, the, it's like a nail. Right. It's, a pretty, it's pretty cruel, but the point is the response this thing has, the animal has to the inciting event is just completely out of proportion. I mean, it goes nuts and starts wrecking havoc. So that's what your immune system sometimes does with sepsis is the response is completely out of proportion sometimes to the infection. And that response ends up killing the person because it's wrecking havoc and chaos in the body. It looks different in different people. And so sepsis is kind of like an old word that we're using for a for a group of syndromes that uh, that masquerade as a as a, a single object, so to speak. So I actually have two questions now, and and I think I I know the answers to them just because I know a bit of our of your history. But one is why did you choose as as a hospitalist? Why did you choose sepsis as the problem to solve? What was the kind of spark mm. moment? And then the other is what is the solution you've come up with? So if it's such an oddball disease, right, or maybe it's a class of diseases <laughs> yeah. hiding under one IC number, right? Like it's, mm. it's got a single code, mm-hmm. but a lot of different stuff going on. How do you, how mm-hmm. do you tackle that? Yeah, you've uh, kind of lit a fuse now. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was pretty happy with my job as a hospitalist. I really enjoyed it. I saw a lot of rare diseases. My job was to figure out, you know, a lot of situations, patients would end up on our service that nobody else knew what was wrong with them. And they would be transferred to our hospital and, you know, super interesting. And sepsis was more of an annoyance to me. Um, as a young physician, I was afraid of losing patients and that, you know, my patients would die. Uh, of sepsis is the thing that kills people in hospitals. And so I would start my day looking at my list thinking, I have 25 patients on my list. How do I make sure none of these patients die before uh, before lunch today? And so invariably sepsis was the answer. So I would look for sepsis in every patient. And you know, when you start looking for things, you start seeing things. And so I started seeing these common denominators to sepsis. And to me, it was more of an annoyance, really. Like, you know, it's like I'm trying to get my patient home and try to make sure they have an uncomplicated stay. And the workflow in the hospital was broken. So I ended up in several situations where I would walk into the room. There would be an experienced nurse taking after, looking after a patient. 
And this patient is clearly headed towards septic shock. And I would be like, hey, you know, let's call the nurse uh, Joe. I would say, Joe, like, hey, man, how come you didn't call me? Like, our patient's headed south for the winter. And you'd say, what are you talking about? I'd say, could be in septic shock in six hours or eight hours. And I'd be like, what? And I'm like, yeah. I mean, look in the computer, man. is wiped out it through, you know. And the guy said, yeah. oh, that, yeah. I haven't had time to see the patient yet, like, in the computer because I'm busy right. taking care of the patient, right? right? So that was one problem I had consistently is I walk into the room, even the, in, the information's there. hidden in plain sight. It's just, yeah, exactly. And so if you're not looking, you don't see it. And so for me, it was more of an annoyance. So I ended up joining the hospital's committee one day because I spent literally six hours trying to get the patient care because it was obvious to me they were septic. Everybody agreed. And I'm waiting on pharmacy. I'm waiting for bed control. I'm waiting for the janitor to clean the ICU room. I'm waiting for the right person to bring the medication up from the from the bowels of the hospital where they store the medications. And I got frustrated just standing. I started yelling. I don't yell very often. And so I realized that, you know what, maybe I can fix the problem from the inside. So I joined the hospital's committee for sepsis. So I started looking on SPAT. While I was doing all this, I realized we need more efficient software. And in the meantime, my friends, so, you know, I'm on this committee, my friend's daughter ends up in the hospital. Uh, and I mean, I, I share this story very frequently. Uh, you probably heard this one before, but I went up there just to pay a social visit to see his kid uh, on hospital day three. I get off the elevator, they call code blue. And my friend is standing outside, he's crying. And I'm just, you know, I'm, you know, inside I'm thinking, you know, oh man, I mean, this thing is, I mean, real. I go in to the room, my intern, resident, a whole bunch of the court blue team is there, doing chest compressions on this kid that I was, you know, sitting at bedside talking to her, cracking jokes the night before. And um, they get tired. So I start doing chest compressions. And then eventually, like, you know, 45 minutes pass and, you know, I realized that, you know, can't do anything about the situation anymore. Um, and she passed away and I had to go tell my friend, his daughter died and he fell on the floor and, you know, mom had gone home for a short period of time, take a break. When mom came back, I had to have the same conversation again. And I went home and it was the worst day of my life. And I just, something inside me broke. And <laughs> in my naivety, I decided I would not be a part of a system where this could happen. And it wasn't anyone's fault. You know, that's the, that's the thing that I kind of point out. The nurses and doctors, like everybody who took care of her, like, I mean, they took care of her to the best of their ability. Everything was done exactly right. And she still died. We should be able to predict this. Like we, sh we like software should be able to predict this. This is not rocket science mm -hmm. and the software didn't exist um, and so I decided that I would try and build it myself. Mm -hmm. um, my wife said no. Uh, so, right. <laughs> so she said, no, you're not going to code school. Remember that patio you built, it took you like, you know, three months and cost four times more than it would have if someone right. else built it for us. So yeah. yeah, so I ended up mortgaging the house and starting a company in the garage with Marcus um, uh, Reitberg, who you've met, who's from Sweden. So you guys have a true garage startup. It's like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak up there. Yeah, that's right. And we've because of COVID, we've moved like 10 feet away. I'm now in my bedroom. <laughs> attached <laughs> to the garage. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell, all right, so you, you, software was the solution. Tell, tell us a bit about Luminaire software and, and what does it take in? What does it put out? 
Yeah, okay. So we just got our patent. So, you know, it came in the mail, so it was lying on my table. So I've been holding it up on the Zoom call. Well, congratulations. For fun. <laughs> Thank you. So it's, it took five years. So it was pretty exciting. Yeah. So uh, not even uh, defensible in the EU, probably. It's, you know. <laughs> uh I, I don't care so what i used to say in the early days which i don't say anymore is you know if you think you could solve this problem build something that like does what we do knock yeah, yourself sure. out and because you know we're mission oriented company anyone yeah. that's able to stop people dying in hospitals i will help them the problem is you pretty much have to build luminaire in order to 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 replicate what we're doing you've got to have sure. the same sort of uh anyway uh the software it's um it's really a process right so mm-hmm. imagine the Coca-Cola bottling company back in like the 1950s, right? You have a, a conveyor belt, you have Coke bottles or, you know, passing on this conveyor belt. And let's say something broke somewhere or, you know, uh, some sprocket broke, some belt broke somewhere. Mm-hmm. It used to be that there's a guy in an overall who like shambles over to see what, where it's broken. He examines it, takes a clipboard, fills out the part requisition walks it back and then, you know, goes to the warehouse, gets the part, gets the guy to fix it. And, you know, another day, you're, you're, you're operating lines out for eight hours, right? right? So that's what healthcare is right now. That's, that's how we operate. It's like you have a person who physically goes and examines the person and says, oh, okay, this is broken. And then they go reach out to other person. And yeah, we have software, great. But the software is not a workflow software. What it does is it's very good at what it does, which is it's a repository for information, but doesn't actually enable you to do anything with that information. Yeah, there's some passive alerts built in, but not really. Okay, so fast forward to Coca-Cola bottling plant 2020. Something right. breaks. There's a software program. Usually it's SAP. I think they have SAP. It basically looks in real time, says this part is broken. Here's the requisition number. It automatically tells the guy to send it down. There's a robot mm-hmm. that picks up the thing and brings it down. Your downtime is less than five minutes, right? And so what we built was essentially a workflow tool that uses software that think of it as a checklist that auto fills itself. If there's mm-hmm. not enough information, it asks the nurse for questions like, hey, mm-hmm. does this person look sick to you? Is this person breathing fast? Yeah. And adds information, makes the information more accurate, tells them what to do next. If it doesn't get done, it tells your boss. If your boss doesn't pay attention, it'll tell their boss. If their mm-hmm. boss doesn't pay attention, it generates a phone call, right? So okay. it, it's in the business of making workflow happen. So we go to a hospital, we get them to agree on workflow, and then the software makes sure that the workflow actually takes place. Gotcha. So, so it's, it enforces a workflow, but it also automates that workflow and it intervenes if the workflow is not that, that being is correct. Yeah. That is correct. And so the reason AI sniffers, right, is, is you know, the buzzword in the industry right now is right. people think that building a more sophisticated alarm works. Mm-hmm. All that building a more sophisticated alarm does is creates an alarm that gets ignored because the nurse is at bedside taking care of the patient. And you have this young mm-hmm. doctor walking into the room saying, hey, why didn't you call me? The alarm went off. What are you doing mm-hmm. about it? And the nurse goes, I didn't see the alarm. Why didn't you see the alarm? Well, I'm taking care of the patient. Yeah. I can also say from experience when I've had to spend an overnight in hospitals, either for myself or with my kid or something, I'm going around the room trying to shut off as many of the alarms that are beeping constantly as possible. So yep. I can get some sleep. Yeah, <laughs> so have, exactly. having something that beeps when there's really a problem is, is probably preferable. Yeah, and it gets ignored, by the way, yeah. today. 
So, so I'm, I'm interested to the extent that, you know, that patent allows you to, to talk about it. What are some of the kinds of data that, that your software, which is it's called Sagita, is that right? That, that's or, right, Sagita, yep. Sagita. What are some of the kinds of data that are captured? And does that depend on like hospital to hospital, what their workflow is? Or do you have like a standard checklist that this comes, comes equipped with? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good, good question. So um, we were in the Center for Disease Control's uh, interoperability showcase for HIMSS. To exactly answer this question, we were being used as an example of how we tie different data systems together. So we mm -hmm. take information from the EHR uh, system, we take information from the monitors, we take information from the labs. Uh, we even have a site right now that uses the patient's insurance information to create a higher <laughs> higher uh, accuracy mm -hmm. on what's going on uh, on the on the floor with the patient. So we take information. Anything that's digital and that's present in the EHR or anywhere, uh, we take mm -hmm. that. And then we add a clinical judgment layer to that information. So mm -hmm. we have a system that allows you to interact and judge, uh, you know, clinically, is this information accurate? Does this person really have fever? Are they really having a fast heart rate in real time? And um, so anything that lives in the electronic medical record, mm -hmm. uh, we use. Gotcha. The, the future the future also holds the number of times a physician or a nurse or someone opened a chart is actually a good indicator of how sick that person is just fyi mm -hmm. no that actually makes a lot of intuitive sense but but probably not something you'd think to it's too simple almost right it's too too perfect yep the insurance information doesn't actually surprise me either i mean you know epic after all was was bill collection software once upon a time like follow the money that's right. and that's yeah no that's that's really that's really fascinating and and you know I, I love software as a solution to you know speeding something up that is both manual and error prone because of how manual it is. How do you? I mean, I, I want to come back to the software and, and what it does. But how do you feel about or what's your experience been building a business where you have to sell something to hospitals? I mean, you're in Houston, so for those of you who aren't in Houston, a, a buddy of mine described Houston as like Vegas for hospitals, right? Like, <laughs> that's right. That is correct. Uh, I don't think our company would exist if we were in any other city but Houston, to be honest with you. I think a part of the reason the solution, you know, good ideas are usually born simultaneously in many places at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, you know, seen over and over again with inventions and, you know, uh, pretty much any scientific discovery. Uh, I think, you know, we're uniquely positioned because Houston is like the Texas, you know, Texas Medical Center, world's largest medical city. We have 18 member institutions, uh, 100, over 100,000 healthcare workers in like 10 square miles. And, you know, um, we got to see the sepsis problem in, you know, 10, 15 different uh, settings within the same city. I was able to essentially walk into any hospital, uh, yeah. request for time with their nurses, nursing leaders the CIOs, the CEOs, CFOs, sit down, talk to them and really examine the problem from all angles before we build mm -hmm. anything. So it's been enormous to have this resource with us. Yeah, no, I mean, the Texas Medical Center offers a product discovery experience like none other if you're mm. solving problems for, for hospitals probably. Yeah. And yep. what, is, what is the value proposition you lead with? Is it the, the humanist, you will have fewer deaths in your hospital or will lower your expenses or lower readmission rates so you get that value-based care bonus from, you know, payers? Like, 
what resonates? Yeah. <laughs> Here are the three pillars of what so, we do. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's funny you should say that. Um, I'm not going to name names, but we've, I actually had a CFO once tell me that, you know, what's so compelling about your solution is, you know, I get a hundred pitches a day about like the human side of like some software that's being sold or mm -hmm. hardware that's being sold. Uh, we have this interesting situation where every time a hospital deploys our product, we're actually able to uh, produce a measurable financial change that is attributed to us. We're mm -hmm. able to produce a measurable change to, you know, their um, fill in the blank metric mm -hmm. that either a, a, a doctor is looking at, a nurse is looking at, or a, or a CFO is looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, uh, we lead with a different thing depending on what we're saying. Right. And very interestingly, the CFOs are the ones who actually care about the clinical outcomes. Mm -hmm. I would I would think that they clear the financial outcome, but it turns out that a lot of our CFOs have been like, they're like, yeah, we get all that cash stuff, man. But like the fact that this is going to help our patients, like is really, you know, CFOs become our executive champions within hospitals mm -hmm. and the doctors are going, hey, this is, you know, I got the clinical side of this great, but as long as it makes financial sense, I could take it to the CFO because I'm sick of saying taking yeah. stuff to them that gets shot down because, you know, uh, it's good for the patient, but not good for the hospital. Well, that's fantastic. It sounds like you walk into a sales meeting and the person you're trying to sell to is already thinking, how do I sell this within my organization? So, exactly. Yeah. So we don't sell as much as we show them the product. We kind of, mm -hmm. uh, sales for us is more about just qualification, like mm -hmm. making sure that we are actually useful to the hospital and mm -hmm. then providing people internally with, you know, the ammo to go and kill it. So, so Sorry you must be crying in the background. It's, hey man, we're, we're all working from home these days. As long as it's not your uh, sales rep doing the demo on the other line who's doing the crowds. No, he's, he's happy now, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm curious to the extent you're, you're comfortable talking about it. You know, how, how far and wide is this is, uh, uh, Sagista deployed now? How many hospitals are you in? Like, are you outside of Houston by now? Or are you in other locations? Yeah, so we're in a couple of states now. Um, we we have a few chains of hospitals that have contracted. We haven't uh, particularly grown as aggressively as um, we would want to because we're making sure that our scale model doesn't break. So mm -hmm. we haven't like you know really turned the key on full commercialization just yet. We're mm -hmm. uh, deploying, making sure that we figure customer success out. We make sure that we don't really get. Um, support tickets you know the software mm -hmm. itself has been used over a hundred thousand times to date um, oh wow uh, on real patients by nurses and you know it's more about process right it's figuring out um, what are the processes within the hospital how do we engage with the physicians how do we display metrics back and we got pretty good at it like i said you know we were excited to be able to uh, work with the cdc uh, they were using our company as uh, uh, as a showcase member for their um, sepsis showcase saying, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, they don't endorse private companies, but we were in their showcase as a CDC partner to, mm -hmm. to, to teach hospitals how to do it. Fantastic. Um, no, that's, re that's really interesting. Do you, are you able to back of the envelope estimate that? I mean, you know, roughly how many patients have used this. Do you see savings of life? Like, are you able to boast? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we uh, we've uh, we have a counter that in real time like looks at how many mm -hmm. interventions we have. Mm -hmm. 
the we have crossed a hundred thousand users on the platform and we're estimating about 200 lives saved to date mm -hmm. and that's a very um, conservative number mm -hmm. you know we say that we've decreased mortality like 98 percent we don't make mortality claims we make claims that we'll implement workflow because we're not yeah. a class two medical device right. but uh, we haven't actually seen a patient develop septic shock and die on our platform in the last two years. That's amazing. And yeah, yeah, and and it's not an attribution problem. You know, sometimes some people die and they say, "Well, it's because they had something else, not sepsis." Right. right? Uh, we know it's not an attribution problem because, as a side effect of deploying our software, hospitals have been telling us, "Hey, you know, just FYI, all-cause mortality went down." So all-cause mortality went down 12%. So people stopped dying from other things too. Less intubations, less rapid responses, less ICU lengths of stay across the board. Uh, doctors are you know, telling us that, hey, you know, when a nurse calls us, we tell them to preface the conversation with, hey, we're calling you because Sagita told us to call you because they take those calls more seriously than, you know, oh, I'm calling you because I have heebie-jeebies on my patient. Yeah. Which is the opposite of a, of a plain old alert, right? Because most right. of the alarms that go off, the nurse is like, ah, the alarm went off and the doctor calls yeah. the ethics and hangs up. Interesting. So I have, I have two more lines of questioning and we can, uh, we can do them in whichever order you want. You mentioned class two medical devices. So I'm interested in the regulatory burdens and hurdles you face. Everything from you know, data privacy and security and deployment to you know, regulatory agencies. And then I, mm -hmm. let's do that one first. And I also want to talk about your product roadmap and, and sort of how you think about data and interventions and what you can learn sort of from that feedback loop. Mm -hmm. So, uh, like I said, we're not a class two medical device. Um, we don't make mortality claims to a hospital. We just kind of mm -hmm. report our pilot data and they can talk to our customers themselves and see what mm -hmm. their mortality is. So eventually the plan is we will be a class two medical device. Uh, we're just, you know, we, we just don't see how that plays into our business model right now because we are, look, my passion and mission is making sure the patient gets care. And in sepsis, you have 60 minutes from the time that the person starts showing signs of sepsis to treat. For every 60 minutes after that, that you wait, mortality goes up by 6%. Or nowadays, you know, we've seen long-term mortality go up 10%. Let me translate that 10% number. If a person goes to a hospital, gets their chest cut open, has cardiac bypass, sewn back up, goes to two weeks of therapy, of physical therapy, goes back home, they have less than a 0.8% chance of dying. So less than one in 100 people who have their chest cut open in their late mm -hmm. 60s with diabetes, hypertension, heart disease dies from open heart surgery, okay? With sepsis, young people in their 20s, 30s have a 10% chance of dying every hour. Mm -hmm. It's 10 times worse per hour to get sepsis than to an open heart surgery. Than open heart surgery. Okay, wow. so here's the thing. It's all about workflow, right? So if I can get treatment to the patient within 60 minutes, right? That mortality stays really, really low. And that's what we do. So we are a workflow optimization system mm -hmm. more than a alarm medical device system. Mm -hmm. And because all of these alarms that you have in place are useless till you can guarantee that the patient gets treatment. So that's mm -hmm. the, that's the, that's the step we take. It's like most hospitals have inaccurate alarms. So we had to build that in order mm -hmm. to go to hospitals, but we don't sell mortality benefits. We sell workflow. 
Mm-hmm. So regulatory perspective, you know, we've gone through the FTS QSUB process. Uh, we fall under their discretion enforcement pathway, which is a lot of verbiage to say we're not a class to medical device and we don't make mortality claims to hospitals. Um, gotcha. and we make that very clear to a hospital. It's like, hey, I'm not, they ask us how much, what is your mortality difference? We said, well, no, you can ask our customers. They implement our software and their mortality goes down by, you know, yeah. 90%. But that's not us. That's just yeah. their workflow gets better. So, you know, yeah. it just so happens they use our software. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. We take this very seriously, especially after Theranos and all of the startups in the healthcare space are, you know, kind of walking around, beating their chest, talking about how cool they are. Uh, we're not interested in doing that. Like, um, mm-hmm. we have some videos that we're going to put out, which is basically our customers talking about their hospital and their culture and themselves and how life changed for them. And the software is just a tool that they used for that. With respect to HIPAA and data privacy, we have a you know full-time chief information security officer, um, Joseph, and we worked on this for years. Like, it, it I think it took us like 10 months um, mm-hmm. Um, before we um, before we were able to deploy in a hospital, just working on information security, working on the policies, working on the infrastructure, mm-hmm. working on. So it's you gotta kind of have to make a, a commitment to it at the front end and oh, just yeah. as a CEO, and you gotta take it seriously. And if you don't take it seriously, like people who work for you don't take it seriously. Now we we found that data security is is embedded in the culture of a company. It's not, and it's not just your product, right? Like you've yeah, got to treat. Yeah your email systems and your, your, you know, whatever communication, whatever, however you handle your papers, you know, mm-hmm. from, from the morning newspaper on up has to be through this lens. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm famous for uh, walking around at work, like with the new hires and, you know, sometimes they're like, you know, they'll be in this, you know, we used to have, uh, have this space where we're onboarding new people and they still don't have access to anything, right? So they would get up and they would go to make a cup of coffee. By the time they come back, they've, if they've left their computer unlocked, there's basically a big, big white page open, which says, I am in violation of my company security policy. And, uh-huh. you know, and basically they have to like come and have a conversation on, on why on mm-hmm. the first day at work, they left their computer unlocked. And that's the last time that happens. And it's a part of our orientation, actually. You know, we that's kinda, amazing. <laughs> we we kind of set it up sometime. I mean, now it's, it's now, I guess it's an open secret. So yeah. <laughs> if you join our company, like, you know, yeah. uh, so it's a part of the orientation is we create a situation where people would leave their cell phone on a table or like something mm-hmm. like that. And we just you know, take yeah. it. And, and then they go, where's my cell phone? And we're like, oh, where did you leave it last? <laughs> <laughs> that, that definitely would drive it home. So, you know, nominally, or at least when we started this podcast series two years ago, um, a big part of the focus was on, on kind of advanced algorithms, artificial intelligence, and sort of where that merges with, with healthcare. And I actually spend a lot of my time in that space. Um, I, I know you're you're rather modest about the technology solution that you've implemented, but tell us a bit more about it, and tell us you know, a bit more about sort of your vision for for making smarter use of of data going forward, you know, of improving the automation of workflows. Yeah, thank, yeah. I mean, um, our CTO is you know not not on a call right now with us. Um, they, they've done a the team has done a fantastic job uh, of building high reliability software. Uh, we actually have a 
I would call it an ML algorithm that runs in the background, not to not to figure out if a person has sepsis or not, but to actually ensure data integrity is uh, uh, what is the probability that the patient who you're getting the information through your data stream on is actually the patient that is being referred to by the front end app. So we have something that tests that in real time to make sure that uh, information coming out of the EHR is high fidelity. We, as you know, you know, we used our sepsis platform and started using it for COVID. One of the reasons we were able to do that is while we were working with the CDC on the on the sepsis product, they looked at us and they said, hey, you know, you realize you can use the same platform for COVID self-assessment. And we said, why, thank you very much. We do think that we can. And so we built a COVID self-assessment system that Harris County, which is the U.S.'s third largest healthcare county deployed, so in the early days, uh, for about six or eight weeks, uh, anyone who needed a test for COVID in Houston, Harris County, so 5.5 million people, right? They had to mm -hmm. go to our, our tool, self-assess, and then get a serial number, and that's how they would get to a testing site based on their zip code. And so we had about 180,000 people that we helped through that. And now we're- And this was just organic, like you had the algorithms that could be purposed for this. And yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we were using it for sepsis and we were mm -hmm. talking to the CDC anyway, and they, we were going to be in a showcase with them on infectious diseases when COVID hit and the mm -hmm. president was coming to the showcase and they said, hey, we have a COVID showcase too. So I got to talk to the people involved in the COVID showcase and I right. started asking questions. And then we kind of connected the dots and, you know, we did a demo and they, you know, CDC is a huge organization, right? So right. we got to talk to people who were working on, on the other problem. And um, uh, so the system got deployed in Arkansas first, just north of Little Rock. Um, um, Based on the videos from, a, what was it, the Lake of, of the Ozarks or something, that region's going to have some cases coming soon. Mm, yes, unfortunately. Yeah. Where we're at now with this is, you know, we um, organically ended up building something that is now useful to bring employees back to work. So mm -hmm. we've gone from not just doing inpatient infection surveillance, so to speak, mm -hmm. to outpatient reporting. And, you know, if you went to OSHA's website or CDC's website, they're basically um, custom kind of pointing people towards the solution that does everything we do. Yeah, and as as of now, we're we we have that first mover advantage. We're the only company in the U.S. that has that end-to-end -end solution doing this. Mm -hmm. uh, to be shamelessly plugging my company on your no, podcast. that's your that is your job. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you know, we're pretty much daily um, signing companies up. Uh, you know, people with five hundred employees, thousand employees, uh, people who have a nationwide presence. Um, meat processing plants, you know, mm -hmm. accounting companies. Uh, we had a defense agency just sign a letter of understanding to potentially right. work with us. Um, and so the, these companies come will use your tool to to help test their employees, track their employees, like make sure their employees can come to work yeah. safely. Exactly. So you know, mm -hmm. as an employer, you want to prove that you've implemented a system that allows your employees to assess for syndrome and surveillance, basically. Uh, mm -hmm. assess for symptoms and then monitor that person longitudinally and uh, this you know this FFCRA tax credits that if an employee takes time off because of COVID related illness the employer can actually get some uh, tax breaks uh, mm -hmm. if they're less than 500 employees so all of this stuff is like you know kind of evolving and a lot of software mm -hmm. companies are playing a catch-up someone told me on a sales call today that uh, they said 
one of our resellers is, brings one of their customers to us and says on the phone call, they haven't even signed an agreement with us yet. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, look at these guys, you know, we've gone and looked at seven or eight other software companies, including like a large insurer that just put mm-hmm. out a software tool for this today. And mm-hmm. they said, no, nobody has got their act together like these guys. Nobody's used the product more in the wild mm-hmm. than these guys' product has. So yeah, so exciting times for us. Um, not what I thought I would be doing. Uh, you know, we, we have churches who are customers now. We have you mm-hmm. know, meat processing plants, carpet laying companies. It's just... Right. Well, I mean, sepsis and, and hospitals undoubtedly presents, you know, an absolutely giant and startup worthy market. You know, quarter, quarter was it uh, 250,000 deaths a year? Was that the number? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A quarter million. Yeah, so quarter million, quarter million deaths a year is, is a great goal, but obviously the... The, the nimbleness, I mean, only a startup could be so nimble as to, to be able to tackle a pandemic in real time like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we've stopped calling ourselves a startup recently. Yeah. We've, we've, been, we've, we've been calling ourselves, like, I don't know what the term is, but like a, a, a growing company. Yeah, you're, you're uh, an SMB, you're a small, medium-sized business, sure. It's, small business, there we go, yeah. SMB. So uh, mostly because when people start saying things to you like, oh, you know, we've done a full market search and this is the, the yeah. industry's leading platform, plus like the effect we're seeing in hospitals and mm-hmm. just having a national presence. Mm-hmm. I think we graduated from startup phase. Again, like we want to stay nimble. We want to kind of, you know, continue to have all the positives of a startup. But I, uh, uh, I'm happy we have structure now as a company. I don't yeah. miss the lack of structure as the startups usually don't have. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I wanted to return a little bit to the actual science of, or, or medical science of sepsis. Um, sure. You started by saying that, that, you know, it's maybe more of a syndrome than a disease. It's a lot of different things going wrong. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really interested to know whether you envision being able to capture some of the intervention data as well. So to be able to actually not only send an alarm, but to guide the intervention based on real world evidence. Yeah, I, I, you've done your homework really well. Uh, either you've spoken to one of our developers or you've read a lot about this. Um, I just think about this stuff all the time. This is what yeah, we do. So. so Yeah, so that's exactly uh, what we're up to now is um, in a huge coincidence, my developers actually texting me on this side about exactly what you're talking about. We're building exactly that, which is we have an expected response for a person mm-hmm. with sepsis, which is namely send blood work, start antibiotics, repeat blood mm-hmm. work. The antibiotics change depending upon what's going on with the patient, where the source of the infection is and so on. That's called antibiotic stewardship. It's a you know kind of umbrella term for that. And so we're now implementing antibiotic stewardship modules where not only do you treat correctly, you also treat for the right duration. If a person doesn't need antibiotics, you stop it so that you don't get antibiotic mm-hmm. resistance. So I sometimes liken this to a car wash. You mm-hmm. know, AI sniffer companies is like taking your car to the car wash and they clean your windshield so you can look, you can see clearly and then you leave. What you really need is like the complete, like, you know, we're going to put out, you know, clean the body of the car, clean the tires, mm-hmm. the undercat, do all the yeah. stuff that nobody else wants to do, right? So that full end-to-end clinical pathway insurance is absolutely what we're up to right now. Well, I th- it just sounds like a, a huge opportunity is to not just raise the alarm, but on such a, a potentially complicated disease or multifaceted, you know, disease where 
it's not just going and saying, oh, this patient's in trouble, but if you can actually direct, direct the intervention to the, the right one. You know, I think a lot about healthcare systems that are really shifting into this value-based care where hopefully we can bring down healthcare costs and do reimbursements based on things that actually make a difference. And so in my mind, the way that, let's just call it smart systems, whether it's a true AI or, or you know, these kind of intelligent uses of data, they're going to make the biggest impact where they can improve patient outcomes and have this financial, you know, benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. the improving patient outcomes, it doesn't help if you do the wrong thing. So. That, that is correct. I mean, if you're putting yeah. hospitals out of business because you don't understand their business model and you don't mm-hmm. understand how they get paid, that's not useful to the patient either. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can think of uh, some ideas off the top of my head that seem superficially to help patients, but they don't really. Like, if it's going to make... Um, uh, you know, a short-term fix to the patient's condition only to find out they get discharged and, you know, their insurance is now not going to cover X, Y, or Z mm-hmm. pathway that you put them on. Uh, that patient's going to get readmitted over and over again. And so, mm-hmm. so do you, do you see behavior changes among your customers? So you mentioned when you were in the hospital every day, you'd come in and like your first cup of coffee was reading all your patient lists. Like, who do I have to intervene? Does, does Sagita have sort of a, an entry point for, <laughs> You know, if I'm, if I'm a nurse starting my shift, is that where I go? Yeah, yeah, good question. So exactly right. So uh, I say this internally to our team very often that the company is actually not a software company where we, we are a behavioral modification company, a UI company and a customer success company that is mm-hmm. masquerading as a software company. People run healthcare, like the nurses, the doctors, the pharmacists, the physical therapists, the nursing assistants. These are the people taking care of people in the hospital. So their behavior very much determines outcomes. Mm-hmm. And we use software to help them get the right habits, track those habits, make sure those habits are well-formed and get done every day. Uh, again, more propaganda from my side is, you know, uh, we're publishing some videos online where the CEO of the hospital and the chief nursing officer talk about this. They talk about the culture change, the mm-hmm. shift that took place after they implemented software. They were surprised. I was surprised by it. I never thought that, you know, our software would produce a behavioral change. But the mm-hmm. one thing that we see consistently is, and I love being in a hospital on go live day because 60 minutes into the deployment, every hospital has this aha moment where they go, oh, it's like your first iPhone, right? An hour after you got your first iPhone, you're like, how did, what did I do yesterday? Like, how, what, I don't understand how. <laughs> so, it's, it's, yeah. so I love being there when they have this moment where they're suddenly, they're like, wait a second, like, what did I, how did we run this yesterday, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so that aha moment is usually because there's a behavioral change, that there is something that got made easier for yeah. them. Fantastic. Listen, I've burned enough of your uh, late Friday afternoon on this call, but um, any closing thoughts? I know we didn't get to, to talk about any of the fun personal stuff, and uh, we'll include some links in the show notes to, to some of Sarma's other interviews where he gets to tell crazy stories about uh, his world travels and, and education in far-flung corners of the world. But um, any parting thoughts or, or anything you want people to take away from, from this conversation uh, more than others? Um, I greatly appreciate you inviting me and thinking of us to be on this podcast. Um, uh, 
although it is a late Friday afternoon, I'm always excited to talk about our mission. And that's what gets me out of bed. I know that's what gets you going to work is you know that your company helps people at the end of the day, patients, uh, you know, in your case, patients who have um, cancer, other malignancies, and in our case, you know, uh, uh, infections and soon to be stroke and heart failure and, you know, other disease mm-hmm. conditions. Parting shot would be um, someone, I think it was Dr. Robert Wachter who just who told me this. He said, um, I'm, I'm sick of these companies in garages that are uh, building software tools for healthcare in silos without talking to their users, without talking to the doctors and the nurses whose lives they're affecting. I, I just think that if you're listening to this and you're building something, um, kind of pause, walk into a hospital or a clinic or whoever, or you know, or, or even a patient's house, all right? I just talk to them and run some of your suppositions by them and see if it holds true because uh, I think that pays off. Like we've had numerous stories of, you know, people whose lives have been saved by the software or nurses who are able to go home and hang out with their families and disconnect because they know that they did a good job because they rely on the software because they rely, they know that they've tied off all the loose ends on their patients that day. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of user-centric design. Um, I'm a big advocate for users. And um, if you're a software company, like I implore you, <laughs> uh, talk, to, talk your to the people, <laughs> talk to your customers before before you start writing code or while you're writing code, pretty constantly. Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. Um, I would throw one out there just from watching you, which is also tackle a problem you're passionate about. I think you know you're going to spend five or ten years beating at this problem. You better really want to solve mm. it. Yep. Absolutely. I I, uh, have three kids. I now have transitioned out of my physician job. I still am credentialed in a hospital. I still try to work a couple of shifts. Um, Mm -hmm. Just keep in touch and uh, keep, you know, the the medical part of my brain awake. Uh, But yeah, I I think if I was not passionate about this, I would have quit uh, probably, you know, five and a half years ago. six months into starting the company because this is hard and it's very gratifying. I think at the end of the day, I think, you know, I'm judging my company's success based on the number of people that we've intervened on. And I have a text message that comes into my cell phone every time we detect a patient who has sepsis. I subscribe to these alerts in real time. That's amazing. Dr. Sarma Bellamuri from Luminaire, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to chat with us. Thank you. This has been episode 20 of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or a review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.